Don't you love your pastor? Don't patty cake. Come on, not like at a golf meet. Clap like you really mean it. I love him. I'm laughing while I'm sitting in the front because my dad used to say, you know, life is like a roll of toilet paper. The closer you get to the end, the faster it goes. <laughs> I, I still don't understand that. How many brought your Bibles? <laughs> Open up to John chapter 10, would you? Your Bible is the most important book in the world. The Nazis tried to get rid of it. Hitler tried to snuff it out. Many people have tried to burn it. What makes the Bible so dangerous? Over and over, the Bible tells us exactly what it is, a covenant, old, new. It's written right in your front pages. You can look at the Old Testament, which means covenant. New Testament means covenant. And so the Bible is two covenants. A covenant is nothing more than a promise. It's a deal made between two people. So the word covenant actually comes from the Hebrew term, which means to cut, to cut between two halves or between two parties. When God made a covenant with Abraham, he cut the animal in half. He walked through the animal of blood, a blood covenant. We say it this way today. We say, let's cut a deal. And all we're doing is making a promise to each other. We do it in homeowners associations. We say, you know, I'd like to buy this home. Well, if you do, you'll have to make a deal. This is the way we build in this homeowners association. You can have, you know, detached buildings or you can have an attached building. There's all kinds of things. And we make a deal. Say, yeah, I want to I do that. I want to build here. I want to abide by the covenant. And it'll be a blessing both to the homeowner and to the association. Do you know covenants are made for blessings? That's why we have all these songs. You have the song we sang tonight. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. Right? To a generation, to your children, to your children's children, to a thousand generations. May his favor go before you. May his presence go with you. It's all about covenant. So God has a covenant with mankind. I want to look at this verse of scripture in John chapter 10 because there's an interesting phrase in there. I want to just, I want to hone on because I think it's so important to you right now, tonight, where you live. I'm, I'm bringing you a, a now message. You okay with that? Nudge your neighbor and say, it's for tonight. This is now. If someone makes a promise to you that's not trustworthy, well, the promise doesn't mean much to you, right? You treat it as casual. If, uh, you know, Mike's my best friend, so if he makes a promise to me, I just count on it. He said, you know, you want to stay at my house instead of a hotel? I said, always, I want to be an imposition to you as much as possible. <clears throat> I took upon that promise, and I'll tell you, those towels that they got in my bathroom, they were hard getting in my suitcase. They are so thick and beautiful. I love him, right? He wants to bless me. When, it, when, when God makes a covenant, a promise to you, he wants to keep the promise. If someone makes a promise to you that's not trustworthy, what do you do with it? You don't do anything with it. You say, so what? They made a promise. Their word doesn't mean much to me because there's no character behind the person. With the one who makes the promise can't keep it, we just put very little expectation on that promise. And then if we put an expectation on it, we know we're going to be majorly disappointed. So Peter says that. He says, people will say to you in the time of the end, yeah, you've been talking for years that Jesus is going to come again. But he's haven't come. Look at it. It's gone past years. People have died. People you knew, their, their loved ones are gone. Jesus still hasn't come. It's been hundreds, thousands of years. He hasn't come. What do you still believe that for? You know what that is? It's an undercutting of covenant. 
Don't believe that God can keep his promise. Remember Lynn Anderson? How many of you remember Lynn Anderson? The Welk sisters, Lawrence Welk. I thought the Lennon sisters were singing on stage tonight. It was awesome. If you know anything about Lawrence Welk, it's on. Never mind, it's a bad joke. So, <clears throat> but, but Lynn Anderson used to be popular on, on Lawrence Welk. She made a song popular called Promises, Promises. You promised me you'd be true to me, but we both know you could never be. You've been putting me on since the day we met. Promises, promises, that's all I ever get. That's all I ever get. Anybody remember that song? Nobody. I need a new congregation. <laughs> it's a tough crowd. I can see this right now. Well, God is the ultimate promise keeper. When God makes a promise, He always keeps it. In fact, He says in His own covenant, I can't break a promise. It's impossible for me to lie. Over six different times, the Bible specifically says it's impossible for God to lie. He's not a man that he should lie. He can't lie. He must keep his promise. Now look at John 10, 35. If you haven't found it by now, just give up. Jesus replied to people who are questioning the fact that he had said he was God, and they were prepared to stone him for it. He said, it is, is it not written in your law that I said you are gods? If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, underline that phrase, and the scripture cannot be broken, why do you say of him, he's talking about himself in the third person, why do you say of him whom the Father set apart, sanctified, and sat into the world that I am blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God. In this one text of Scripture in the New Testament, Jesus is affirming over 2,500 Scriptures about Him in the Old Testament. He's affirming the 333 specific Scriptures of his birth, his life, his death, his crucifixion, his resurrection. He is affirming this specific idea that God would come in human form and that he would be fully man and he would be fully God. The scripture proclaimed it. Like Psalm 2:7, the Lord said unto me, You are my son. Or Psalm 110, the Lord said unto my Lord. Or John 17, 24, Jesus saying, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Or Isaiah chapter 9, unto us a child is born, a son is given, human, divine. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. No wonder when Jesus is born, he's not born of two humans. Because if he's born of two humans, then he would have the alliance of two humans. He could not be God and man. The Bible says in Hebrews 10, 7, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, the covenant, it's written of me. And what is it written? Sacrifice and offering you wouldest not, but a body. You have prepared for me. 
These scriptural texts that I've just read to you are just a smattering of God becoming man while he still remains God. When you look through the Old Testament, you will find that you can trace the genealogy of Jesus in numerous ways. From Shem, you can trace it from Abraham, you can trace it from Judah, you can trace it from David, you can trace it from Joseph. All of them are men. All of them are men. Yet Micah 5.2 says, He is the ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been of ancient days from everlasting. Here's the way Jesus said it. Before Abraham was, I am. There's a stunning statement. So Isaiah wrote, you are high and you are the lofty one who lives in eternity. Ezekiel describes him as the ancient of days. The psalmist said, you are from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Jesus Christ, Paul writes to Timothy, the king eternal, the king immortal, the one who has changed everything because he is eternal. He's the only wise God. God outside of time says, I will come into time. The one who's from eternity who makes the promise that in time, your life can be redeemed. Your life can be changed because I created you. I knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb. This is the covenant keeping God. So Jesus is from eternity. He is eternal. This is why eternal life is not something you get. It's someone you have because he's eternal. So the very character, or we would say the DNA, though God doesn't have DNA, we would say the DNA or the character of God is not only eternal, it is true. You can't alter it. You can't change it. God says, I'm not a man that I should lie, nor the son of man that I should repent. I am the Lord who changes not. All of these words in both the Testaments are covenant language. This is why you see blessing and cursing. It's why you see faithfulness and true and just and righteous. All of these are covenant terms that you must deal with. God is a covenant-keeping God. So when he comes into the world, the first thing he's talking about is his promise, his covenant. His very nature is that way. So Jesus says, Jesus says funny things like this. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the eternal life. Why does he talk like that? Because that's who he is. He is God in human form. So Jesus says, not only am I the way, the truth, and the life, all the scriptures teach of me. They demonstrate the eternity of God. No wonder Paul says, I pray for you that you will... Be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you can understand what God is telling you rather than be like the, you know, the blonde woman who ran over a cat you know, in her driveway, separated his tail from the cat. She gets out of the car. She's you know, mortified you know, that she's almost killed her cat, but she separated his tail. So she quickly puts the cat and the tail in the car and runs him to Walmart. You ask, why Walmart? Because she said, isn't Walmart the largest retail store in America? 
just lost my halo, didn't I? <laughs> now, as corny as the joke is, how often do we approach God in the same way? That His promise couldn't be true or that He won't keep His promise or that it's impossible for Him to do what He said He will do. Jesus said, listen to it, the Scripture cannot be broken. So God, by His very nature, is a promise keeper. So when He speaks, it must happen. So when He says, let there be light, there is light. When He says, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, there is a firmament that appears. When He says, let the waters be gathered together, they are gathered together. Do you realize that there is more water in heaven, in the heavens, in the universe, than there is on the planet? A hundred billion times more, scientists say. I don't know, I've never seen it. They have names for it, this moisture, that, and they can't figure out where it comes from or how it got there because God said, let the waters be separated. Let the waters be separated. Let the earth bring forth grass and the herb yielding seed after its kind, and it was so. When God speaks, it cannot be broken. So the word scripture that Jesus uses in John chapter 10 literally means a, work, a record written or a written record. The word scripture is not even used in the Bible until Daniel chapter 10, verse 21, when an angel actually comes to Daniel and gives him the word of the Lord concerning future kingdoms that will come over the next 3,000 years and what will happen to the Jewish people whom God has covenant with. So he tells them what's going to happen over the next 3,000 years before Daniel will ever be alive. The angel tells Daniel to write it down, and you know what he calls it? Scripture. It's the first time it's used. It's the Hebrew word kathab. It means a written script. God has already written your life down. The Bible said not only did he know you before you were born, he wrote all the things in his book about you. You are a written script. God has planned you. It is not an impossible thing to accomplish what God has written about you because what he speaks must happen. It cannot be broken. This first time it's used in Daniel 21 is when he says, calls it scripture. The angel tells Daniel, Write this scripture down. Why does he write it down? Because God has a covenant with the people of Israel, the Jewish people, and he wants them to know their future because of their own disobedience to him, a Jew named Abraham. So the whole scriptures in the Bible and the Old Testament are written about Abraham, the covenant of God that he makes with Abraham an everlasting covenant that he makes with him. This is why we call everything in the Old Testament before Jesus the Old Testament. Everything written after Jesus is called the New Testament. Jeremiah the prophet spoke about this new covenant that he would make. Behold, the days come, Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to deliver them out of Egypt. But I will put my law, which they broke, into their inward parts. This is the day and age that you and I live, where people would be called Christ-like. 
Because the word, Logos, Christ, would be written on their heart, not on tablets of stone. Covenant. It's a legal promise. It's what God speaks because he cannot lie. Now, let me give you an example of this. Meaning promises made, promises kept. So God promises to this nation of Israel to deliver them out of a nation called Egypt, out of their bondage. 250 years before they ever go down to Egypt. Do I need to say it again? God makes a promise to the Jewish people, the Hebrews. That's where Hebrew comes from. They came across the river. Abraham came across the river, come across. He makes a promise to them in Genesis chapter 15. Abraham sees the next 430 years of his life, only which of 90 he will be alive when the promise comes to him, when he's told about it. This is when he makes the blood covenant. He walks between the animals. God says, now that I have your attention, let me tell you what's going to happen over the next 430 years. Abraham will be alive, 90 of them. But God tells him what's going to happen, that his people, his descendants, will end up going down into Egypt and they'll come into bondage there. And they'll come into bondage how? <laughs> Here's a good one. Through taxation. That's how they'll come into bondage is through taxation. They'll have to pay the government to actually live there. And why? Because the government says, these people scare me. And if somebody comes and attacks me, these people will probably go in with those alliances and they'll overtake them. So let's tax them. Let's charge them to live there. And the taxation became so heavy that pretty soon they were slaves to the government. And then they started killing their children. Gosh, nothing ever changes, does it? Now, covenant is a legal promise. So God makes a promise to this nation, I'll deliver you out of the bondage of Egypt 250 years before they even go down to Egypt when Jacob takes his sons down there because his other son Joseph is down there. He doesn't know he's down there. You read the Bible, right? This is a story in the Old Testament. This is 250 years after that God makes this promise. God keeps his promise. Here's another example. God tells Daniel, who's been captured by Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king of Babylon, that Babylon will fall to another empire, the Persian Empire, who will then fall to another empire, the Greek Empire, who will then fall to another empire, the Roman Empire, which that empire will also fall and then it will rise, try to rise again before the Messiah comes a second time. But Jesus hadn't even come a first time. Yet God is already sharing to Daniel what's going to happen 3,500 years apart from Daniel's life. Here's what I'm trying to get to you. Is that God already knows your future. Because he's written a script about it. 
it's a written record. He already knows what he's called you to. He's already called you to a new covenant. He's already called you to be taken out of sin and brought into right standing with him. He's called, he said, I'm going to come back for you. If I leave, I will come back for you. And he said, I go to prepare a place for you. This is all written down for you, brother. Your future is glorious. It is not evil. It is not bad. It is not depressing. It is not discouraging. Jesus is coming back for you who belong to his new covenant. So Isaiah, Isaiah, who is before the prophet of Jeremiah, has also written about God's word concerning Israel in the time of the Persian Empire. Now follow me. Here's Isaiah. Here's, here's Jeremiah. Here's Daniel. So Isaiah writes about what Daniel will actually face. So specific, he actually names the king that Daniel will deal with. So specific to it that history says that when this king actually saw the writings of Isaiah, he said, I'm impressed that I'm in your holy book. Isaiah 44, 28. Thus will say Cyrus. That was the name of the Persian king. Thus will say Cyrus, for he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, saith the Lord. Even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built again and your temple and your foundation shall be laid. Isaiah prophesies this before the city of Jerusalem is taken over and the wall is torn down and the temple comes down in ruins. He prophesies that a king in the future named Cyrus will call the Jews to come back to the city of Jerusalem and rebuild it and build the wall. This is before you ever heard of Nehemiah, but Nehemiah is the one who came back and rebuilt that wall when he talked to the king and said, you know, it really bothers me that this wall has been torn down, but this is after Ezra has already taken a bunch of Jews down there to do what Cyrus had told them that they were supposed to do was to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild it. This is how the whole old covenant comes together. It's based upon the promise of God that God said, I'm in covenant with you and because I have a covenant with you, my promise I cannot break. So Isaiah makes the prophecy and then Jeremiah picks up on it by the word of the Lord. And says that when this happens and they all go into Babylonian captivity in 70 years, God will bring them out. And they'll come back and rebuild their city. Now guess who the king is when Daniel is praying about this in chapter 10? Cyrus. Yep, you guessed it. Cyrus is the king. Daniel 10. In the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, a thing was revealed to me. A time appointed which was... True, because the scripture cannot be broken. His name, Cyrus. And what did he do? Well, you guessed it. You know, you read about it. He said, you know, I got an idea. I think I should send the Jews back to rebuild their city. And I think the Lord, I think God in high showed me that. So anybody who's a Jew can go back. Ezra writes about it. He writes, Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that the word of God by the mouth of Jeremiah the prophet would be fulfilled, stirred up the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, 
who made a proclamation, thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among all the Jews? Let him go up to Jerusalem and build the house of the Lord. So just as God had promised, 150 years before Cyrus was even born, 170 years before Daniel is born, God says it, and it's not going to be broken. Boy, that puts our feet on sturdy ground. <laughs> Hallelujah. I said that puts our feet on sturdy ground. You go, look at the crazy things that are going on in the world today. I know, isn't it wild? Hip, hip, hooray. Hallelujah. God even said that it would happen. He talked about what would be going on before he comes again. He mentions to us what our lives would look like and tell us what would be happening. People would be giving in marriage. People would be doing business as normal. People would be traveling. He said inventions, creations of technology would be so fast and people would travel all over the world as never before. And you and I are living in it. In fact, we're used to it. I'll tell you how used to it we are. I saw a, what do you call it, a rotary phone the other day. And I said to my grandson, I said, oh, look, an old rotary phone. He said, what is that, Papa? I said, it's a phone. It doesn't look like a phone. Yeah, it's a phone. How's it work? I said, we well, got to dial this. And I turned and did the dial thing, and it goes click, 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 you know. He goes, that's weird, Papa. I said, yeah, it is a little weird, but I can tell you one further. I said, I can remember when you used to pick up the line, didn't have to dial, and said, hello, can I get a line through? And he goes, what? He didn't even understand that dynamic. And most of you, I can see, you're looking at me at a cow to Newgate. You don't understand it either. Here the Bible says that Cyrus, the king of Persia, would be the one who called the Jews to come back. So just as God had promised, follow it, 150 years before Cyrus, before he's born, 170 years before Daniel is born. God says it, and it takes place. I am the one written of in the law, Jesus said, and in the prophets, for the Scripture cannot be broken. When you know Jesus as Lord, you have the eternal one living on the inside of you, the one who's outside of time, who knows your future better than you know your past, who's already declared that he has a covenant with you. So the new covenant affirms that the Messiah of the old covenant is perfect and that he's sinless, that he is God in human form, and he comes to give you a brand new covenant, a life with God. You know that he appeared to take away our sins and in him is no sin, John writes in 1 John 3, 5. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit in his mouth, says Peter in 2.22. In Hebrews 4.15, he said, we don't have a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He was in him, Paul points, tempted like as we are and yet without sin. Hebrews 7 says, we had such a high priest who is holy, unstained and separated from sin. He's undefiled. He's not like a priest who would offer Offer up sacrifices for his own sins and then for the sins of his people, but Jesus Christ offered up himself. Again, in Hebrews 8, 6, he has obtained a more excellent ministry for he is the mediator of a better covenant established upon better promises for he was sinless. Sin no longer has the right to rule over you. It no longer has any authority to govern your life. 
The sin of the world is not an issue for you anymore because Jesus Christ broke its authority over you. You no longer have to live under the curse of fear. You no longer have to live under the curse of worry. You no longer have to live under the curse of anxiety because Jesus Christ broke the power of sin off of you. You not have to be afraid of your future. You can glory in it. You don't have to be ashamed of your past. It's been wiped away. You don't have to be afraid of whether your family's gonna make it or not or your kid's gonna get shot on the street or you're going to lose your job, or you're going to go without, because God's already said, I'm the one who can care for you. I'll protect you. I'll keep you. I'll hold you. I'll bless you to a thousand generations, because I've got a covenant with you. Hallelujah. Because of the sinless Christ taking our place, all our evil thoughts, our all adulterous ways, all our prideful and arrogant ideas, all of our self-righteousness, our wickedness, our deceitful actions, all of our idol-making of educational elitism, all of our seeking entertainment for pleasure more than God, all of our worshiping work more than we worship God, the sinless Christ pays for all of it. The price of all your sins has paid for because God made a promise that he he would do that to you. The seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, would crush the head of the snake and it would break the sin's power over your life forever. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to stand up and shout pretty good. Promises, promises. That's not all I ever get. I get Jesus, hallelujah. Now you and I are a new creation. We start over. We're right with God. Our past is wiped away. We are clean, pure, right with God so that we can actually enter into his presence without guilt, without shame, without a sense of our unrighteousness or our failures because we've been made right with him. Listen to Hebrews 9.13. If the blood of goats and calves under an old covenant could be sprinkled, and set apart the people to be pure? How much more do you think the blood of Jesus Christ, who by the eternal spirit offered himself without sin to God, completely purge your heart and mind from dead works to serve the true and living God? This is why he's the mediator of the New Testament, who by means of his death has redeemed us from all transgressions of that first covenant and given to us an eternal inheritance." It's another term for covenant, inheritance. It's all over the Bible. Just as a last will and testament is written to you and it's put in force by death, a last will and testament says what I want to do to protect your future, what I want to do to provide for your future, what I want to do to help your future. That's what a will is. Hmm? So Jesus Christ wills to you every promise of eternal life and then puts it in force by dying for you. And it cannot be broken. The scripture cannot be broken. Nothing can stop it. No devil in hell can stop you from being born again. No devil in hell can keep Jesus from abiding in your heart. No devil in hell can keep you addicted forever in your sins. No devil in hell can hold you in your pornography trap. No devil in hell can keep you and split you and divide you and destroy you. It doesn't have any authority, no power, because Jesus Christ already crushed his lordship, and that scripture cannot be broken. The moment you say yes to his promise, his covenant happens to you. Just like when God brought Israel out of Egypt, he spoke to them. 
every place the sole of your foot shall tread. I've given it to you. Go into this land and take it, possess it. But they wouldn't say yes. They said it's not possible. God can't keep his promise. He'll break his word. It just won't work. We're not trained soldiers. We're not skilled warriors. The people are a lot bigger than we are. They called them giants. They said we're all going to die and our children will be ruled as slaves. Your promise cannot be true. And nothing happened for them. Nothing. They wandered in a wilderness complaining that God wasn't big enough and that he wouldn't keep his word. They said God doesn't love us. And they whined about it day and night, all because they themselves said no to God's promise. They lived without it and died without it. But another generation came along, and they said, you know what? If God said it, we're going to trust it. We're going to believe it. They weren't trained soldiers. They didn't have a mighty army. They hadn't grown any bigger. They didn't have any more assets. They didn't have any land. They had no riches. They had no resources. They just said yes to God. They said, if if God wrote it, if God said it and it's written, well then, by golly, we're going to do it in Jesus' name. And they said yes to God's promise. And when they said yes to God's promise, they marched right into Canaan. And they took down the first city that was surrounded by a wall big enough to drive chariots and horses across the top of it. And it leaned out. And the Bible said they stood up and they worshiped God around that city. And that city came tumbling down all because they said yes to a promise that God could not break because it was his covenant promise to them and whenever they said yes to God that promise comes into being in their life and the wall comes tumbling down would to God a bunch of believer covenant people would stand and shout let the walls fall because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead we're not ashamed we're not backing down we're not running and hiding the covenant is still in force I hear the shouts of Marxism today I hear the shouts of Marxism, but I don't hear the shouts of the church. You say, Marxism? What is that? Karl Marx, the father of communism, he had no faith in God. In fact, his belief system was that the government should control all human property so that everyone could be treated fair. He had a term for it. Maybe you've heard it. Social justice. Yeah, he believed he could make it fair economically for everyone. It was a new phrase termed by Marx. Equity, he called it. To treat everyone fairly. State supremacy was necessary to squelch what he called religious oppression. He said in his Communist Manifesto that the nuclear family, which was a man, a woman, and children... The nuclear family, as described in the Bible, was the oppression of society. So he said to bring control to a government, you have to destroy the nuclear family. You can read about it today. It's being taught to your kids in universities. You could just as well go read it. He said that the nuclear family must be dismantled. So the first way to dismantle it is to dismantle sexual fidelity, intimacy, between one man and one woman. Destroy this moral oppression 
upon society. And if you can rid that from the nuclear family, then you can bring down the nuclear family. So they flooded their civil institutions with pornography. Everywhere you went in Russia, you could find pornography. It wasn't in a red light district. It was everywhere. It laid on the streets in pamphlets and booklets. You didn't have to find it hidden in someone's mattress. They flooded it. And then they give the ability to get a divorce just by writing on a postcard, I want a divorce. Didn't cost you anything. The government gave you a divorce. But then you have a problem because then women need work. Just what Marx said. To create a feminist revolution, he said, we must get women into the workplace and make them feel as victims. Where people feel as victims, they will hate their oppressors. You should read it. As I said, it's being taught in your universities. The second thing he wrote is encourage all sexuality as normal and healthy. Affirm it that any sexual abnormality is normalized and it will bring confusion to the masses. Third, he said, we must stop children from inheriting the wealth of their parents which continues the oppression of the people. These are pretty wild things, aren't they? Fourth, he said, every woman must leave their oppressive husbands. By creating victims, they will leave their homes and they will get into the workforce. And then we can control the children. And so they popped up daycares. That was the first time you ever had a daycare. Never existed before then. Everywhere. Daycares popped up government run. And they infiltrated family. They destroyed the nuclear family. They made divorce easy and simple. They flooded with pornography. And in less than 25 years, you had a Marxist revolution. And a Christian Orthodox nation was no longer free. It was under communism. Marx said everyone will want to leave their children so the state can raise them. So we must exploit women and sell it as liberation. <laughs> this will create a generation that's dependent upon government. Crisis should never be solved, only used to create dependency on the state for it to gain more power and control. The state could be the provider. I'm quoting from the Communist Manifesto. The state could be the provider of health care. It could be the provider of guaranteed wages. The state then can control prices to make everything fair. They can give free college tuition. And they can assure people to have a comfortable retirement. You've been to the communist nations. Nothing in his utopian society is true. Just as Satan said to Adam in the garden, God's not really true. He's lying to you. There's a whole lot more you can do if you decide you can run your own life. 
Oh, may the churches in America stand and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the liberation and freedom of any nation on earth. Do you know that the 17, um, the 17 uh, ideas that are put in the Declaration of Independence were sermons? They were sermons. And these men heard these sermons in churches and they said, you know, something's not right about what the government, the king is doing. He's a tyrant. They said, you know, anytime you give one man the power to judge and to litigate and to be the executor, you have a problem, you have a tyrant. So when we set up a government, let's not put all that power in one man's hand. Let's do what Isaiah said. The Lord is judge, he is king, and he is a legislator. So let's, let's divide these separations of power. We'll have an executive branch, we'll have a judicial branch, and we'll have a legislative branch. And I listen to legislators today in our own government not even know what our government is. They don't even know what the three houses or the three branches of government are. And they're elected. And I think to myself, maybe the church is failing a lot more than I think. Well, the, the church shouldn't be involved in politics. Why not? Why shouldn't the church be involved in politics? Isn't Jesus the king? Do you know what George said? That's the king of Great Britain. You know what he said when they came in? They said, George, you're not going to like it, but every time we attack the people, they keep yelling this phrase, there is no king but Jesus. You know what he called preachers? The black-robed regiment. He said, we got a problem with the black because they all wore black robes, you know, when they preached. We got away from that now and wear a little cute vest. But, but the whole point is... <laughs> They have these black robes and white collars and King George called them the black-robed regiment. They're the most dangerous thing in America. We got to rid American colonies of that black-robed regiment. Oh, thank God for the preaching of the gospel. In the gospel, there is freedom. In the gospel, there is joy. In the gospel, there is liberation. That's why God said, I'll deliver you out of the bondage of a king that will tax you and kill your children and make it legal to kill them. And here we see it in our own nation and we fear to stand up against the government and say this is not the word of the living God. God has given to us his promise. So he said in the world you're going to face tribulation but you need to be a good cheer because I've already overcome the world. John 16, 24. He said in the book of Psalm the Lord will surround me with mercy because I trust him. The Lord of mercy is my defense. I will sing praise to him for he is my strength. Psalm 59, 17. The Lord redeems my life from destruction and he crowns me with loving kindness. Psalm 103. I will neither hunger nor thirst nor will I feel the pressure strike me down for the Lord is merciful to me and he will lead me to springs of water. Isaiah 49.10. I am in Jesus Christ, who of God has made unto me wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption according to his abundant mercy. The Lord will deliver me. He will save me from my enemy. Nehemiah 9.27. As for me, saith the Lord, my covenant is with you, and my spirit will be upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor will they depart from the mouth of your children, nor will they depart from the mouth of your children's children, says the Lord. For I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall see visions and your young men shall dream dreams I'm still dreaming I'm still young hallelujah God of our fathers has a covenant with us to break any bondage any dominion of sin off our lives in the name of Jesus Christ so come Lord Jesus hallelujah the covenant keeping God praise the Lord hallelujah so I'm going to pray for people tonight I'm going to pray for people, especially with strained 
muscles and the Lord will bring healing to you. I don't know how you strained it, maybe an accident, maybe something you lifted, maybe something of disease in your body, but a strained muscle. It can be what we might call a pulled muscle. Usually there's inflammation that happens with that because of the blood that is, uh, takes place and the muscle inflames. But I want to pray specifically over strained muscles in any gamut from the worst to the least of it. So if you're here tonight and you say, well, well, I've got a strained muscle, stand right up on your feet in the name of Jesus Christ. Stand up on your feet because I believe the Lord of the Lord, of God of gods who's the healer does so tonight in the name of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray over those who have stood in faith, just reacted to the word of the Lord, that you are the one who heals and restores and redeems. And tonight I speak to every muscle that's been strained, pulled, damaged, hurt, or is even diseased and has caused a strain in that muscle by the authority of the blood of Jesus Christ, our covenant-keeping God, I speak to them and I command them to be whole and strong and healed and restored in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And I thank you, Father, for your healing mercy that's flowing all over this place in the name of Jesus Christ, bringing redemption from that strained muscle and hurt in their physical bodies in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. 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 You're a keeper of your word. You're a keeper of your word. You ought to move something you haven't been able to move. Check it out. See what the Lord's doing in your body in the name of Jesus Christ. Just his miracles. That's who God is. It's what he does. Hallelujah. Amen. Now be seated for, well, forget it. You've all been sitting. Everybody stand up. Hallelujah. And I want to, I want to call you to Christ. If you've never asked Christ to be the Lord of your life, I, I want you to give your life to him because he'll keep his word to you. He'll forgive you. He'll make you a new person. It's not a religion, you see. It's not, um, it's not a, a bunch of do's and don'ts, but it, rather it's an issue of you trusting what he has said to you that he can't break that promise. If I say yes to you, Jesus, will you forgive me? Yes. If I say yes to you, can you make me a new person? Yes. If I say yes to you, will you actually forgive me all my sin? And make me right? Yes, he will do it. And tonight, that's for you in the name of Jesus Christ. It's not about joining a certain church, but it's about joining a family. And it's worldwide. It's the body of Christ. And he wants you to be in it. He wants you to be his child. Come on, every head bowed, every eye closed for just a moment because it's very personal. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, if there's one person here or 10 or 12 or 20, it matters not the number, but if they've never asked you to be the Lord of their life, tonight is their night. This is now for them. You make it now. You make it personal. You forgive them, and you make them right with you, and you redeem them from this dominion of sin over their life, this curse, this judgment that hangs over them, and you redeem them from it in the name of Jesus Christ. If you're here tonight, you say, Pastor, I want to do that. I believe that Jesus died for me. I want him to be my Lord. I want you to lift your hand and raise it at me. Would you just lift your hand and raise that because I want to pray for you specifically. Just like I prayed for people to be healed. I want to pray for you specifically in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you in the name of Christ. Hallelujah. Oh, how he blesses us. How he blesses us in Jesus' name. All right. 
I'm looking for a moment. I don't think I've seen one person raise their hand, so I'm just going to assume you're all believers, which means then that you all have covenant with God, right? It means you all have covenant with God. So I want you to just lift a hand towards heaven. Just, it's just kind of a, like, you'd, like you'd lift your hand in a court of law. It's kind of a lift your hand and swear, you know. And so I'm asking you to lift your hand and say, I'm blessed coming in, going out. I'm not under bondage. I'm not under defeat. The curse is removed. I have covenant with God. He knows my future. And it's a good future. A redeemed future. A blessed future. In the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Lift your other hand up and just thank Him for it. Hallelujah. Oh, God, how we thank you for this great redemption that's ours, that you can't break your promise to us in the name of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Glory to God. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want you to welcome a guy here that's a cloud breaker, a dream maker, a preacher of righteousness. I think he's your pastor, Michael Kalstrup. Give it up for him as he comes back. Well, how many of you got something out of that tonight? How many of you are swimming in deep water? Huh? It's like taking a drink out of a fire hydrant. I thought, you know, if there was some way we could make a great big circle and we could all just, you know, reach our hands behind, well, maybe it would just side by side, and we just rub each other's head, you know, so we go, did, did you get all that? I mean, were you following that? I mean, you know, you know, that somehow or another there'd be some form of therapy in that. Well, you know, I tell you, man, what a word. Glory to God. <laughs> Hallelujah. So good. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, listen, we got one more night of this. Amen. And those of you that raised your, I mean, that stood up to be healed, isn't it good to be healed? I, you know, this past Friday, I was uh, trying to take care of what I call domestic things, and I had either... I don't know if I tore it or I popped it. I popped something in my shoulder because I was I was out here with this weight and yeah, well, I had an owie after it was over with. And I tell you what, Jesus visited me right there and healed my shoulder. Glory to God. That's awesome. Anybody else got a testimony? Want to testify to being healed? Huh? Jerry? Same deal? good now? <laughs> Amen. Glory to God. That's awesome. Amen. Praise God. Well, it's good and God's good and thank God he is faithful. Amen. What a great word. So anyway, we want to welcome you to come back tomorrow night, seven o'clock. Amen. We're going to have a great time with the Lord, more of the ministry of the word, building on the foundation for faith. Hallelujah. So that we can have confidence in our God. Amen. Well, turn and greet those around you. Let them know you're glad they came. And you can be dismissed. God bless you.